Well, throughout creation history, God has spoken to his people in many ways, as the writer of Hebrews says. In the garden, he walked and he spoke with Adam and Eve. In Exodus, he spoke to Moses in a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. And in Hebrews, the author says, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Today, I want you to know, God is speaking to us in Ecclesiastes. This unusual, this mysterious, this sometimes confusing book Uh, God is speaking to us. So as we start, we should pray. Let's pray together. Father, we want to hear you speak to us this morning. Lord, we want to, as a church and as individuals, we want to know your voice. We want to recognize your voice when you speak so that we can know you and we can grow in our love and our affection for you and we can be changed by you. And so this morning, Lord, as you speak to us in Ecclesiastes, Father, would you help us to hear your voice? And would you help me, Father, to speak in such a manner that you are heard, that you are glorified, that your name is praised. Lord, thank you for the joy of gathering together as the family of God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is on a journey, and he's on a journey observing the real world. And again and again in Ecclesiastes, as you'll see chapter by chapter, he constantly remarks, I saw, or I perceived, or I observed. And this morning, as we look at chapter 4, we're going to be doing the same thing. We're going to be observing. We're going to be seeing. But as, you, as we go through chapter 4, I don't want you just to look at what is there. But as we're going along, I want you to try and figure out what is not there. Because there's something missing in this chapter. Last week, we saw the preacher in chapter, the end of chapter, chapter 3 struggle with the problem of evil in the world as he observes life under the sun, or as we have talked about from our first week together, life from the road, rather, from above. He is viewing life under the sun, life apart from God. And last week we saw that he saw wickedness where there should be justice, and he saw wickedness where there should be righteousness in chapter 3, verse 16. And so he, he continually goes astray in his thinking because he views life from under the sun. Now, he hasn't abandon God. That is not where the preacher is at. He, he hasn't left God. He still believes in God, but he attempts again and again in this book to find meaning in life apart from God as he views life under the sun. And on his journey, the preacher again in chapter four sees more evil under the sun. And the title of the message is The Evils of Life under the sun. And it's an observation that we will see repeated 
throughout the book as he views evil again and again under the sun. You'll see it here in chapter 4. You'll see it in chapter 5, verse 13. You'll see it in chapter 6, verse 1. You'll see it in chapter 9, verse 3. You'll see it in chapter 10, verse 5. So it's a, it's a theme. It's a, a constant in this man's life as he is journeying on this road, similar to Christian in A Pilgrim's Progress, as he's moving along and he's, he's experiencing life in different ways and he's observing all he, he sees time and again is evil under the sun. Evil abounds because this is what life is really like under the sun. This is the reality of life under the sun. And so my proposition this morning is this. Evil is overwhelming if only seen from under the sun. But those who believe the gospel can see beyond evil to the glories of heaven. They can see beyond evil to the glories of heaven. Life and evil are overwhelming if all we see is life from under the sun. But if you believe the gospel... If you've trusted in Christ, if you've put your faith in our Savior, you can see beyond evil to the glories of heaven. And so as we explore the preacher's observations in chapter 4 of the evil in life under the sun, I want to be careful that you don't let the darkness of this sinful world darken your heart. As we have gone through this series in Ecclesiastes, one of the consistent comments I get is, Larry, when you are speaking, I I just keep getting depressed. And I get it. I get it. Now, hopefully at the end of the message, you're not depressed um, because then I'll be depressed and I will be like the preacher seeing life from under the sun. No, I don't want you to have your, have your heart darkened by just seeing what is sinful in this world. Don't look at life from the road. Don't get caught looking at life from the road. You are not living in the ancient world of the preacher. That's not where you're living today, who, who has no knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have the good news of the gospel. You know that Christ has overcome evil. You know the ultimate end of evil. You know the ultimate end of death because of the resurrection of Christ and the promise of eternal life that he's given us. You don't have to see this world from the darkness that the preacher does in Ecclesiastes. And as we'll see at times in Ecclesiastes, the preacher does have a level of faith. A, a life of faith in a sovereign God is, is revealed from time to time as the only remedy. He, he comes to that. And as we will see at the end of Ecclesiastes, that's his final conclusion. That is to fear God and to know God. Now, what I want to do this morning is give the explanation and then the application of our text. And the main points, the explanation of the text is about life as it really is in this world. And to the, obviously to the, the preacher's observation, four things. He sees the evil of oppression. He sees the evil of envy. He sees the evil of separation. 
and the evil of pride. And as we look at these four observations made by the preacher, we will see the underlying and we're going to see the serious consequences that evil forces upon its victim. Its victims experience the consequences of isolation, being alone, being separated. Those victimized by others and those who, in a sense, victimize themselves by their own sin face a life of isolation and loneliness. And that is what the preacher is communicating. That is what he's explaining in this text, that there is this evil under the sun. And he, and he shares with us four ways in which he sees evil under the sun. And he says, the consequences I see of this are loneliness and isolation and separation from not just others, but ultimately from God. So first, the evil of oppression. Verse 1 of chapter 4 through verse 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And that tears is a, a sustained weeping. The tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." The preacher is an eyewitness to life's oppression as we are. It is the evil done deep under the sun that he sees to those who are not powerful. The powerful taking advantage. Oppression is when someone uses their power to gain advantage for themselves over those who are less powerful. And that's who the preacher is describing here. There is much oppression around us in our own world that we see. The man who with the hourly wage is just barely making it to feed his family. The woman whose husband abuses her verbally or physically. The, the young child who is sexually molested and those in our society who, who don't have power are oppressed. And that oppression that we see just just inundating us on the nightly news or online. We, we see that in our world today. Devin praying for the persecuted in China. Those are the oppressed. And that's who the preacher sees here. And he says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. He sees the oppressions from every angle. And he says, behold, the, the tears of those who are oppressed. The, and that is the, the sustained weeping, the continual weeping of those. They had no one to comfort them. And this is so serious, so heinous to him. He repeats it again. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. That is so discomforting to us to see that they have no one. That twice he has to make that remark about how evil it is to those 
who are oppressed, to those who are abused. And they are all alone. And because of the troubling nature of what he, he unfortunately sees, he comes to a very bad conclusion. In verse 2, he says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He believes that the oppressed would be better off dead than those who are alive. He's not thinking rightly. But do you blame him? He's not seeing rightly. He's seeing life under the sun. Just a a few verses earlier in, in 321... He has no confidence that, that death even holds any future hope. He wonders even if there is eternal life. And yet he sees that because of the wickedness and the evil of oppression, it would be better to be dead than it would be to be alive. Michael Eaton in his commentary just says this. He says, it is godless sorrow that leads to suicidal longings. And that's what the preacher is describing here. He is, it, is, it is suicidal. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And in verse 3, his final conclusion is it's a proverb that he shares that even goes beyond the desire to death because of the depth of pain he sees in the oppressed like Job the preacher says that it is better to never have even been born, to never have existed at all. Now, it might be that you felt this way at times. You might have felt this way because of the pain of oppression, the the loneliness of having no comfort, the angst, But unlike the preacher who does not know Christ or have Christ as a promised comforter, we do. We do. Paul writes in Corinthians that we have a comforter who comforts us in all our sorrows. We don't have to see life from under the sun, but we see life through the eyes of the gospel. Jesus is not only a friend to sinners, he is a friend to the oppressed. In Matthew chapter 9, a familiar passage to you where Jesus talks about his care for those who are oppressed. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. You know, prior to coming to faith in Christ, my friends, we were oppressed. We were oppressed by our sin. We were oppressed by the world, the sinful world that we lived in. We were oppressed by those who had more power than us. We were oppressed and we were alone and we had no comfort. But because of his great mercy, 
because of his great love, he chose us in Christ and he chose us in Christ to display the riches of his grace. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Oh, but let one... The one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We were oppressed, but we can boast in the Lord because of the gospel. That is the first evil that the preacher sees, the evil of oppression. The second evil he sees is the evil of envy, a a distortion of work. In verse 4, then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work came, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. You know, in 224, just uh, a few messenger, messages earlier, a few chapters earlier, the, the preacher sees work as a gift from God. There is nothing better, he says, for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And now in 4, he sees the evil. And he, it is hyperbole when he says this in 4, that I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from, comes from a man's envy. But it is, it is the, the theme of the day that he sees that that there are, there are people, there, there is the human condition that we envy and that we are willing to step on one another to get to the top. That is the evil he sees under the sun. Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary says this, Indeed, it is precisely in the area about which Kohelet, the preacher, is talking that jealousy is the most heinous attitude, since most jealousy or rivalry of neighbors is due to covetousness and thus results in the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Taking a look into the human heart, Kohelet sees only a selfish motive, getting ahead of one's neighbors behind work. This motive can never be satisfied, so it leads to ceaseless work and despair. Thus, Kohelet looks at the motivations of the heart, and it turns him sour. That's his experience here. I see envy everywhere I go. I see, I see those trying to get ahead of each other. I see those wanting to outdo one another. I see that as an evil. The preacher sees much evil there. Rather than joy in God-given labor, as we saw earlier, covetousness and competitiveness fuel the desire to work. And who can't identify with the preacher here? How do you feel when you see a coworker promoted and not you? How do you feel when you see a neighbor's new car? What emotions stir in your heart? How do you feel when your close friends experience blessings from God that you haven't experienced? 
what rises up in our hearts? Is it not at times envy and jealousy? The preacher sees much evil in ambition and envy. And he says, to climb to the top, you have to step on people to get there. And his conclusion, once again, is that this is meaningless. This is this also is vanity and a striving after wind, he says in verse 4. Now, why is envy in life and work so meaningless? Why is it? Because jealousy rather than love for one's neighbor results in strife and division, which always ends in separation and loneliness and isolation. Solomon in Proverbs says this in verse in chapter 17 he says better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. He sees he sees the striving and the envy, the jealousy. He sees the strife that comes and he said it's just better is a dry morsel. Better is is shredded wheat without any milk without anything better is that than feasting and strife. In verse 5, he shares another proverb with us that is in contrast to a life of envy. He said, okay, so there are some who don't envy and this is who they are. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. So the thought is, okay, I'm not going to be envious. I'll just do nothing. The heck with the rat race that this world tries to throw upon me. I'm not going to engage in that. But this way of life is no better. It only leads, as he writes here, to self-destruction. Proverbs 6, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So envy's not the answer. And laziness is not the answer. So what is? Well, in verse 6, he pops another proverb upon us. And he says this, better. And you'll notice that word appears a lot, especially in this chapter. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. As we've already seen on occasion... The preacher does see life from above the sun, as we see in this proverb. And rather than grasping, he says, with all we can, with two hands. Think about your children when they, when they are having an opportunity to have candy. Maybe some of you did Halloween stuff and, and you just, they just grab all they can, you know, and candy's just falling out from all sides. He's, he's saying here, better is a handful of quietness, just enough that you can hold in your hand, just enough, than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Paul says it this way in Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is contentment, not envy. And as Christians, as those who've come to faith in Christ, that, 
that is our view of life above the sun. That godliness with contentment is great gain. Not envy and ambition and jealousy, which is vanity, meaningless, and a striving after the wind. That is the second evil he sees under the sun. And the third evil he sees under the sun is the evil of separation, of selfish pursuits. Of the old, now I'm dating myself, the old Three Dog Night song. If you ever knew who Three Dog Night was, which I went to a Three Dog Night concert when I was in my prime, still in my prime, but younger prime. And their famous song, One is the Loneliest Number. And that's what's being described here. The preacher sees another example of life under the sun in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. There's that loneliness and that isolation again. Either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. The preacher sees another example of life under the sun that is so evil. He twice in this verse, these these two verses declare it vanity. He starts with, again, I saw vanity. And he ends in verse eight with, this also is vanity. It's meaningless. There's no meaning to this kind of life. There's no meaning to this kind of evil under the sun. There is no there's no meaning. It's, it's striving after wind. It's like trying to corral the wind and, and put it in a, in a bucket. You can't do that. On his journey, he has observed meaningless in so many different places. In pleasure, in foolishness. He's seen it in the evils under the sun. And so... He goes on to tell this story in verse, in verse, verse 8 about a man. He says, one person, one, this man all alone who has no other. Why? Well, because he separated himself. There is no end to his toil. His life is, is this fixed on, on trying to satisfy this insatiable appetite for for money, for material, for, for gain. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks. He doesn't even bother to ask, who am I doing this for? And, he, and who am I depriving myself of pleasure? I mean, he even deprives himself of pleasure. He is so committed to this selfish pursuit. Now, this might seem like an extreme example to us, but, but who doesn't know somebody like this, if not ourselves at times, striving after, after material things, after money, with the view, with the, with the deceiving lie in our own minds, I'm doing this for my family, and yet, who are the ones that suffer the most in that pursuit? It's family. As dad is never around, as dad is always at work, So here is this man who is pursuing to the detriment of everybody around him, particularly, most likely, his family 
Who does not know someone like that? Who does not know the destructive nature of pursuing riches, pursuing gain, and going after these things, and nobody really gains at the end? Proverbs 18.1, a very telling, and I think maybe in the, in the preacher's mind, Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. It's not unusual as a pastor in, in my responsibilities when I see that man walking down that road and he's pursuing career, he's pursuing promotion, he's pursuing wealth and materialism. And he has this belief he's doing it for his family. And he argues against all sound wisdom. And that is the evil the preacher sees here. That is who he perfectly describes. But, in verses 9-12, through 12, we see, again, the preacher rising up and seeing life above the sun. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is a, another above-the-sun proverb that the preacher is giving us. The context of this passage, by the way, is it's about companionship in ancient Near Eastern times as men would journey together for safety along dangerous highways. And we've got to be careful that we don't spiritualize what the author is not spiritualizing here. This is not about the Trinity. And this is actually not about marriage. Husband, wife, and, and Jesus Christ. The threefold cord is simply a statement, as most Proverbs are, that is, it's a truth to be considered. Now, what he's saying here is friends are good to have. That's what he's communicating. If the companionship of two people is beneficial... How much better are three? God told Adam in Genesis that it is not good for man to be alone. We need each other. And that's why when we were saved, we weren't saved in an isolated situation, but we were saved into a community. This community, the community of God's people, the church, that's what we were saved into. Now, now with the, with the uh, application here, you can, you can bring application um, as you have heard in, in wedding ceremonies about a threefold cord. Yeah, you can, you can do that, but that's not the context here, just by way of, of being clear. And so that is the evil of, of separation, the evil of selfishness, the evil of pursuing life. And so this is what the preacher sees. He sees evil under oppression. He sees evil in envy. He sees evil in, in selfish desire and separation. And he continues on. He sees evil in pride. Look at verse 13. And here he tells another story and 
in the sense of, uh, this is another proverb, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after wind. How great is the sin of pride that separates us from one another. I know of no other sin that separates more powerfully than the sin of pride. Where we go our own way. It's the, it's the very thing that separated us, separated us from God. We went our own way. We rebelled against Him. It leads to independence and ultimately a separation from others. It's another evil that leaves us alone in the world. And the preacher gives this proverb and this story to help us to understand the old king takes no advice. I better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So to the older generation here who knew who Three Dog Night was, who still might listen to Beatles songs now and again. Just because you're old, maybe you have some wisdom and experience, you can still take advice. Don't let pride prevent you from hearing from the younger ones around us. Let us walk with humility with one another. Let us not be pride, prideful, and let us not reject the advice that we can learn from. But then he goes on. This young man, for he went from prison. Here is this young man who was oppressed. And he went from prison to the throne. What a success story. And though in his own kingdom he had been poor. And then he goes on, the preacher goes on, I saw all the living who move about under the sun. All this great kingdom, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, this youth rises to being a king. And there was no end to all the people, all whom he led. And here's the result. Not only the evil of pride, but I want you to know about the emptiness of popularity. Here is this young man, prison, poor, and ends up king, all these people following him, and yet, at the end of verse 16, yet those who come later will not rejoice or as remember him. Popularity. This is just another insidious form of pride. Popularity. It ends. We all get old. Life moves on. Earlier in Ecclesiastes we read where the preacher was lamenting that those who are dead are long forgotten. They're not remembered. 
And that is what he is crying out here. Life under the sun is vanity, he says. Being popular and being remembered doesn't mean anything. But for us, now that's life under the sun. That's an evil under the sun. But for us, for those of us who know Christ, what's important is that when we trusted in Christ, we were not forgotten. Our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We have an eternity that rests before us. And we will be remembered on that final day. So our application. My application is this. It's about being a Christopher in an evil world that is under the sun. Now the question, you look at this, you look at these evils, you see the evil of oppression, you see the evil of envy, you see the evil of, of separation and selfishness, you see the evil of pride and popularity, and you just, I mean, you ask, we all ask the question, why are things like this? It's because people do not fear God. And that's what the conclusion is in chapter 12, verse 14, that the, the preacher comes to that we must fear God. And we are like this because we do not fear God. We have rejected God. We've turned away from Him. And Romans 1 is the description for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is that not Ecclesiastes? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of a mortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And three times, Paul goes on to say, God gave them up. That is the answer to why things are the way they are. That is the answer to why there is such evil under the sun. It is a sad story. This is what life is really like in Romans 1. Paul says to live without God. But there's a solution. And if you are living a life without God, I want you to know there is a solution. Jesus, who came and lived a perfect and sinless life under the sun and experienced the ultimate in loneliness and rejection and isolation in his suffering and by his death on the cross, fixed the problem. He fixed the problem. He exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness and he clothed us in his righteousness. This is a great exchange. Something I'm familiar with, I, I, I go shopping for clothes without Marilyn and I return a lot of clothes once I get home and Marilyn looks at them. And she just shakes her head and says, no. That is a great exchange for me as well. This is what Christ has done for us. He's exchanged our unrighteousness with His righteousness. That is the solution. And eventually, He will fix our under-the-sun world when He returns and He creates a new heaven and a new earth. 
Until then, what happens? Well, he continues to save individuals. That's what he does. And he saves them so that he can use them in saving others. And that's my Christopher illustration. A wonderful illustration, actually, I heard at one point from Mike Fulmore, which stuck with me. The word Christopher in Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but Christo, Christ, so for meaning to carry, Christopher means to carry Christ. So everywhere that we go, it matters how we live life and interact with others. We are to be Christophers. Those who carry Christ. Those who carry Christ to a world that lives under the sun. We are, when we are kind to our waitress, when we are kind to the checkout person or the barista at Starbucks, it matters. It matters. We when we listen to our neighbors, when they open small windows of their lives for us to see, it matters because they are experiencing life under the sun. They see evil. They feel evil. They experience the pain of evil under the sun. They are oppressed and they are without comfort and they are trapped by envy. They are aching for companionship. They are alone and they are enslaved and they feel the emptiness of this world and it is Christopher's. Those who carry Christ who can make the difference. We, brothers and sisters, we don't have to we don't have to experience the hopelessness of life under the sun, even as we see these evils, even as we see oppression and envy and separation and selfishness and pride and popularity. That doesn't have to affect us. But it does affect the world. Oh, Rather than seeing evil under the sun as believers, let his glory fill your eyes not the evil of this world. You know, as I was preparing, this old song came to me from a group called Glad back in the 1980s. And one of their songs on the acapella project was Be Glad. And, and there's one refrain in their verse in there that stuck with me. It says, Oh, says, oh, be ye glad every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. Then he goes on to say this, so be like lights on the rim of the water, giving hope in a storm sea of night. Be a refuge amidst the slaughter of these fugitives in their that's what it means to be a Christopher. To be a light to the world. My friends, there is evil under the sun, but more importantly, there is a Savior. There is our Savior who is above the sun. Let's not isolate ourselves from the world. But let us each be Christophers and carry Christ to our neighbors so that the evils of this world are not all that they see. For those of us who are Christians, when facing the evils of this world, 
we have Christ. And that's all we need. And that's what we want to bring. That's, what, that's who we want to carry. We want to carry Christ to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have lifted us up above the sun. You have lifted us up above the evils that we see in this world and that we can look to you. That's all. You are all we need, Lord. You are all we want. Lord, let our affection and our desire grow for you that we may see your glory and we may bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.